Good evening. Hope you guys all had a good afternoon. Weather turned out nice and sun was out, birds were singing. It's pretty nice. This morning, we asked ourselves the question, what does it mean to be the church in the world? We touched on some thoughts about Jesus calling sinful people to be his primary means of expanding the gospel message to the world. And to be sure, he calls, those he calls are not only sinful, they are also redeemed. However, we will all be fighting against the problem of sin until Christ comes again and fully restores his kingdom. Romans 8.30 explains, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. From this, we can deduce that while Christ calls us as we are, he doesn't expect us to stay there. Since we have been given the charge in the Great Commission to evangelize as we make disciples, it stands to reason that some good work needs to be put in to live into the pursuit for which we have been created. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he uses metaphors of fishing and shepherding to teach the crowds. These were aspects of life that many of the common people were familiar with, and that's what made them effective. They drove home the point because they were relatable. This morning, I related many of my points to dairy farming. I did this because it provided a framework familiar to many of us. But tonight, I want to use the analogy of a soldier. This should help bring out some of the points that are being made in the text. We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. This passage tells us in part one of the ways the church is called to live in the world. I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 3. Before we read God's word, let's go to prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your revealed word. We ask that you open our hearts as we open your word. Help it to penetrate our souls and illuminate our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Got too many Bibles. Here we are. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks of you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. May God bless the reading of his word. Some of you may know that I am a chaplain in the Michigan Army National Guard. I've served in the Army now for over 20 years, but I've not always been a chaplain. Before I joined the chaplain corps, I was an ordinance officer and before that, I was an MP, and before that, I was in the Transportation Corps. But the unit that I was part of in 2003 was in on the U.S. invasion of Iraq. 
That happened in March of April of that year. And not long after the U.S. invasion, uh, we firmly controlled Baghdad, Tikrit, and Mosul. It's the so-called Sunni Triangle. As U.S. forces gained significant geographical ground, one of the primary objectives remained unmet, capturing Saddam Hussein. In December of that year, my platoon had a mission to bring some supplies from El Balad, which is north of Baghdad, from Camp Anaconda to Bayop, or Baghdad International Airport. When we were preparing to leave Bayop, we received a message that no convoys were going to be allowed to leave. This type of directive was not unusual as the threat levels there constantly remained in flux. Eventually, rumors made their way through the camp that Saddam had been captured. About 20 minutes after that report, the rumors were confirmed as true. We witnessed a security detail bringing him through the gates to a detention facility. There were large cheers and much excitement as the reality of the situation came in. Many of us had been away from home for about a year already, and the capture of Saddam Hussein was a key element in completing the overall U.S. objective. Saddam was a tyrannical leader. He was responsible for murdering thousands of his own people. As the occupational forces moved north into the country, there was a feeling of relief that the reign of terror was finally over. We witnessed dancing in the streets. The local population came out in droves just to thank us. It reminded me of the scene in Band of Brothers where the Allied forces freed the people of Holland from Nazi occupation. While the next phase of the operation, the reestablishment of the government of that country, proved difficult at best, the occupation of key infrastructure and the capture of Saddam had been successful. When leaders talk about what makes an operation successful, one of the main elements that they identify is training. Leaders ask, how ready are the people charged with the mission or operation to carry it out to completion? Training is so vital that at its, at its most basic level, one of only two thing, it is one of only two things that the military does. We are either fighting or training. A soldier arrives at basic training and learns the fundamentals of military life. Marching, customs and courtesy, weapons training, and how military processes work together. Next, he or she learns all about the specific job that they will have. When they arrive at their first duty station, they begin integrating their skills in with a whole unit and finally a large battalion. In time, they will attend more advanced skills training. And as they progress in rank, they will be required to attend specific training to function at higher levels of responsibility. While all of this is being done, there will doubtless be deployments or large-scale integrated training operations. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why is there so much emphasis on training? And the answer is simple. It is too late to train once you're in the fight. It takes time to understand how the communication networks work. It takes time to assign 
how, or to understand how all your gear is used. It takes time to understand the nuances of different weapon systems and vehicles and processes. Accomplishing the goals of, mili- of the military depend not just on soldiers knowing how the things that they have work, but on being highly proficient with them. In 1 Peter 3.15, we are charged with a task similar to that of a soldier. Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks of you for the reason for the hope that you have. The word translated here as answer is from the Greek word apologian. It means to provide a verbal defense. This is where we get the word apology or apologetics. Don't confuse this with what people sometimes say is, I'm sorry, as an apology. Apologetics is the study of defending biblical claims using logic, reason, theology, and philosophy. What Peter is saying to the Christians of his day is that they need to be prepared to be challenged about their decision to live for and to follow Christ. Do not wait until the pressure is on before you think about things. Get prepared now so that you are able to stand firm against those who challenge you. It could be that these early Christians may have had to defend themselves against oppositional authority or brutal crowds who did not want to see the established cultural norms challenged. So what does it mean to be ready? First, it means a spiritual transformation has already occurred. The fact that Peter is charging Christians means that at some point those individuals were confronted with the decision to abandon their former ways of living so that they could become fully devoted followers of Christ. Second, it means discipline. Hebrews 12.11 tells us that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. But what is discipline? Discipline is an intentional pattern of behavior intended to produce a desired result. Discipline can have both positive and negative aspects. Some positive or active aspects are practices. Some of these are praying at regular times throughout your day, having a regular quiet time built into your schedule, Memorizing scripture, attending public worship, engaging in service opportunities, meeting with your small group. For parents, since they have been charged with the primary role in providing the spiritual formation of their kids, it can mean family devotions, walking through the confessions and creeds, engaging in questions of practical theology. Now I realize that Most of you don't have the advantage of formal seminary training, but that isn't what Peter's after. In simple terms, what Peter is saying is this. If you are going to call yourself a Christian, then you better be prepared to answer why. I must admit that I do find some irony in the fact that it is Peter who's making this charge. I'm sure that many of you know what Peter is famous for after Jesus' arrest. Not once, not twice, but three times, 
Peter denies Jesus. He doesn't just deny being a Christian. He denies even knowing who Jesus is. Perhaps it is because of this experience that Peter is compelled to be prepared to stand up against outside pressure. Peter's denial experience is illustrative for us. It demonstrates what can happen when a soldier goes into battle unprepared. Instead of donning the armor of God and standing firm in faith, the person who has not taken true ownership in his or her faith will be ill-equipped to stand against adversity and challenges when they surely will come. How many students take ownership of their faith? They go to college and are challenged by peers, professors, and culture in general. Will they be like the unprepared Peter, who quickly forgets who he is and begins to deny the Christ? Or will he be like the prepared Peter, the one who has taken his faith seriously so he can boldly defend his position? But students aren't the only ones caught in this dilemma. All of us are. So my question is, where are you today? Are you aware of your own doubts and questions? Have you just gone along for the ride with your faith? Or do you have a thriving relationship with Christ, built on an assurance of salvation and a firm understanding of his continual work of redemption? Part of a soldier's life is being prepared to take a physical training test at any time. These tests are only required to be given once a year or if you're leaving for a special school. But Army Doctrine explains that they are also a tool that are to be used by commanders at their discretion to assess the physical readiness of a unit. Commanders may require a PT test at any time without prior notification. So what's the implied task? It's to be ready, always, because we don't know when the test will come. We don't know the future. We cannot predict when or why we will need to be ready. By incorporating spiritual disciplines into our lives, we are preparing ourselves for whatever situation we may encounter. Building these practices into our lives and being prepared doesn't mean that we're finished, though. There's still work to do. Peter says that we need to defend our faith <coughs> excuse me, with gentleness and respect. Several years back, there was an arranged debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guy. The debate was not premised on the fact that the God who made the whole world, the God of the Bible, is the same God who governs all scientific laws. Instead, the opponents each held two objectives. The first one was to make their opponent seem incredulous, and the second was to make themselves seem credible. This is not what Peter has in mind. Although Aristotle was not a Christian, his breakdown of persuasion or appeal is useful here. Aristotle conceives of three modes of persuasion, logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos refers to the logical treatment 
of the case. Does what someone is saying make good sense? Do they have a sound argument? Is their logic firm? Pathos is the emotional appeal of the speaker. Is the level and type of emotion consistent with the presented logic and topic? Are they passionate enough to get your attention? Does it seem to fit what they're trying to say? Do they offer emotional evidence that convinces you? Or do they seem disingenuous? Ethos has to do with the character of the person. Do they profess something that their actions deny? Have you ever screamed at someone that you loved them? It's not very convincing. There's a disconnect between the action and what is being said. The first part of our discussion is focused on competence, the logos, the ability to articulate and defend our faith with logic. When Peter urges us to use gentleness and respect, it is to preserve our Christian witness so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is essentially what Aristotle is getting at with the use of ethos. Do our actions support what we profess? Jesus provides two great examples for us in this regard. When soldiers came to arrest him, he refused to fight and argue. Instead, he replied to them, do what you came for. And when he is accused before Pilate, and everybody's hurling accusations. Jesus stands there, silent, allowing his character to do the talking for him. A negative practice of discipline is exercising restraint in what we see and do. The movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, And the activities we engage in all say something about our character, our ethos. My prayer is that God will help us build a life of discipline and spiritual practices into our regular routines so that we are able to defend with logic, with our hearts, and with our character the truth that he has planted in us. Let's go to God in prayer now. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals. We lay our hearts open before you now, asking that you would make us aware of any sin that is in our lives, that's preventing us from being beings of uh, your, your character, living up to the character that you've called us to be. God, We are sinful people here on earth that you've called, that are using, and are redeeming. Help us to experience your love. Help us to be genuine people. Help us to be willing to go the extra mile and let our character do the speaking when those those around us may question whether or not we're acting in truth or we're trying to manipulate people. We ask that you fill this church with people who are 
seeking after you with all of their might. Give them a sound mind. Give them a pure heart. And give them solid love for you. In your name I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand now for the blessing. God be in your head and in your understanding. God be in your eyes and in your looking. God be in your mouth and in your speaking. God be in your hearts and in your thinking. God be at your entering and at your departing. Amen. We're now going to sing uh, Whiter Than Snow. Number 436, verses 1 and 4.